there's a number of different variables that we found to be associated with colostrum production, some that we already knew, such as parity, but others that we're still continuing to learn more about. Welcome back, everyone, to the Dairy Science Digest. This is a podcast designed to bring the Journal of Dairy Science straight to the ears of dairy producers. I'm Reagan Bluel from the University of Missouri Dairy Team, and today we're discussing colostrum. And you might be thinking to yourself, oh, I know all about that colostrum. However, if you pause for just a moment and think back, remember that cow that gave no colostrum, and then the next cow nearly overflowed the can. What if you could possibly better understand what causes some of these variations in volume and quality. What if you could equip your dairy calf team to be ready for those situations? Then listen in today as we're being joined by Trent Westoff. He's a graduate student that's personally boots on the ground responsible for all the hard work behind this amazing data set of 19 New York dairy herds that afforded the opportunity to learn more about the epidemiology of bovine colostrum production in New York Holstein herds, cow management and environmental factors. Welcome Trent to the Dairy Science Digest. Could you please briefly introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and discuss some of this data and share some of the results from some research that we've been working on since 2019. So as introduced, my name is Trent Westoff. I'm a fourth year PhD candidate at the College of Veterinary Medicine at Cornell University. I grew up on a small diversified livestock and row crop operation in Iowa, where my passion for animal agriculture began. After graduating high school, I attended Iowa State University and received a bachelor's degree in animal science. And then I moved to New York and started my PhD. And we'll be discussing some of the work that I've conducting over the past couple of years. Fantastic. And you work in Dr. Mann's laboratory, and we, we've recently interviewed her also in a, in a separate podcast, but this one's specifically focused on, on colostrum. And we all know that uh, colostrum is so important to the success of that baby bovine. And I quote your paper saying that newborn calves rely on colostrum for essential nutrients, hormones, growth factors, and other components for early life nutrition, organ intestinal development, and the transfer of passive immunity. This is this is liquid gold. And so very important topic that we're going to be talking about. And you were really just looking at a deep dive and better understanding some of the things that we can control and what we can't control. So can you talk a little bit about this observational study and how how'd you enroll the herds that were involved in the study? Yeah, so I'll take a step back and kind of start from the beginning and and we all know from reading different articles and, and working on farms that colostrum is such an important component in that newborn calf's life. And it's made up of a number of different variables. And um, many of us dairy producers and researchers have identified that colostrum production varies throughout the year. So we were interested in better understanding some of the variables on farm that are associated with these changes in colostrum production. So we set out to enroll commercial dairy farms in the state of New York. And we started by enrolling 19 New York Holstein dairy farms, and the average herd size was approximately 1,500 cows. On each one of these herds, we uh, worked with their farm staff to collect records of colostrum yield, as well as bricks percent, which as we know on farm is an indicator of colostrum IgG concentration throughout the course of approximately one year. 
And we also collected a number of different variables on those farms and throughout those dry periods, including temperature and humidity, as well as light intensity sensors in the close-up dry cow pen at each of the participating farms to better understand the environment that those cows were living in, as well as some of the prepartum nutrition variables and dry period length. Very good. So your team used a multifaceted approach where you did some survey work. And then as you were describing, you also captured on-farm data and and temperature and light data in that close-up barn. Could you talk a little bit about what's one of the favorite results that you have from this data set? We set out and we collected a lot of data. And some of the most exciting data comes when we look at it as a large picture. And we know that some previous work as well as reports from uh, dairy producers themselves that clostrum yield as well as bricks percent is variable throughout the year. However, in, in the research world, there's not a ton of data on looking at multiple dairy farms that support this hypothesis. And we were able to use the data from all these different farms in order to show that clostrum yield is greatest during the summer months and decreases through the fall and winter months which really goes out to agree with what the dairy producers are seeing in the field. So it looks like from your data set, the the cows with zero pounds of colostrum yield moved into double digits through October, November, and December, with the highest being 15.8% of cows recorded with zero in the month of December. Uh, So it's always exciting when our results and the observations that we're noticing the field agree. You bet. And beyond that, there's a number of different variables that we found to be associated with clostrum production, some that we already knew, such as parity, but others that we're still continuing to learn more about are the association with dry period length, the sex of the calf, as well as the temperature humidity index, as well as light intensity. When you talk about parity, let's go into that a little bit more. I thought it was interesting. You were analyzing just under 20,000 cow records. A little over 13,000 were multiparis and and around 6,000 were primiparis. And comparing and contrasting that multiparis versus the primiparis or first lactation or, or aged cattle, looking at the total volume, I found it interesting over all of those records, your first calf heifers tend to produce about a gallon of of colostrum. It looked like in total uh, it was four kilograms, uh, and as you convert that over, it's about a gallon. And then your multiparis over over that same period of time were producing a little over a gallon and a half. And so. As I was looking through your survey work, I found it really interesting that many of these herds, they'd harvest their colostrum right away. I was super impressed that over half of them do it within that eight hour window, but I was surprised to see, and maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but I was surprised to see that Ninety-four point seven percent of all of the herd sampled, they feed frozen or stored colostrum. Could you talk a little bit about what listeners could glean from this potential management practice and how it could maybe help us all in some time efficiency? How do these herds manage the flow of colostrum rather than calf getting dams colostrum? Where are they gathering the colostrum from? Yeah, that's a great question. And to start, I think it's important to understand the farms that we were working with. As I mentioned, our average herd size was just over 1,500 cows. 
When we think about cluster management practices on dairy farms, the size of the herd may have something to do with how they're managing their clostrum. On the specific herbs that we were working with, it was pretty common for cows to have their clostrum harvested within eight hours of calving. And once harvested, that clostrum is cooled and either stored in the refrigerator or the freezer. And they keep a, a constant supply of high-quality clostrum. They do that by measuring the BRICS percent at harvest and making decisions with that BRICS data. And then when a calf is born, depending on the farm, they can either thaw a clostrum from the freezer or uh, warm it from the refrigerator. And that's to ensure that that calf receives high-quality clostrum within one to two hours of birth. You bet. And the data suggests that over 90% of, of the producers were doing that. They were getting it into the calf. I also wanted to talk a little bit about the lactation effect on the bricks percentage. So the quality of the colostrum. I found it quite interesting that your first calf heifers were significantly less in quality. Can you speak a little bit to that? And how can folks best prepare when that first calf heifer is coming, coming fresh? Yeah, that's another great question. And and when we talk about BRICS percent, we know that it's indirect measurement of IgG concentration, which is currently the gold standard measurement for colostrum quality. However, when we look across parities, we, we split these cows up into uh, parity one, two, three, four, or five or greater calving. And we looked at the BRICS percent that those cows produced. And our first parity cows were associated with the lowest clostrum BRICS percent, and that BRICS percent increased as parity increased with our cows of five or greater lactation being associated with the greatest clostrum BRICS percent. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to note here, though, that our, our first parity animals still do have the opportunity to produce high-quality clostrum. And when I was working through the data, we noticed that within BRICS percent, there's a wide range of BRICS percent within each individual parity. So on commercial dairy farms, we still suggest the use of a BRICS refractometer in order to help us make decisions based off of the quality of colostrum. As again, I mentioned that all animals do have the opportunity to produce high quality colostrum and using a BRICS refractometer allows us to provide a quick and easy measurement in order to make a decision based off of that quality rather than just solely going off of something like uh, the parity of that dam. Absolutely. And um, it's well worth the investment. If you haven't done so already, you probably ought to own a BRICS refractometer for your herd. Now, figure two, I found really compelling. It's quite complex. Uh, if I could describe it to the listeners, and I'll be sure to put a link to the paper on the description of the podcast. So, of course, the Journal of Dairy Science offers open access, and you can view this yourself. But here on the x-axis, we have month of calving, and you're really talking about focusing in on, on that seasonal effect of colostrum production. But on the on the y-axis, uh, on the left side, you've got heat and humidity. So it's that thermo index that we're accustomed to looking at. And then on the right side is the light intensity. And so we're really looking at across all of these different farms. Of course, every close-up cow herd is going to be uniquely different in different farms, uh, but they're all located in, in New York. And so very easily you can see the the heat of the summer and there's quite a bit of variation between the light of the barn can you speak to anything is there did you find anything associated with those slightly darker barns 
with your close-up cow relative to colostrum production? Yes, uh, we took two sensors and one measured temperature and relative humidity and the second measured light intensity. And previous research has associated the temperature humidity index and the photo period before calving with colostrum production. However, that data was taken from local weather stations, and we were specifically interested in looking at the actual environment that the cow is living in for those weeks before calving. So we placed those sensors into the close-up dry cow pen where that cow is spending the last couple of weeks before she calves. And then we took the data and we looked at the weeks before calving. Uh, so for temperature humidity index, we looked at seven days prior to calving. And with light intensity, we looked at the 14 days before she calved. And that's the actual environment that that cow is living in. We then took the records of their colostrum production and we looked if the actual environment, so the temperature humidity index and the light intensity that that cow is exposed to was associated with their colostrum production. So when talking about colostrum yield, we associated temperature humidity index and light intensity with colostrum production for multi-parous cows. With those animals being exposed to warmer and more humid environments being associated with a greater colostrum yield, and also those animals that were in a brighter environment being associated with a greater colostrum volume. I guess if we could pause there for just one moment, I can understand the importance of the light. Um, that that makes sense to me because I know that there's uh, all those sensors that are relative to, to stimulate prolactin. Um, but I don't understand if the, if the cows are heat stressed, we saw an elevated volume of colostrum through the heat stress. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, so this, this data is, is pretty challenging to work through. So we know that colostrum production, specifically colostrum yield increases during the summer. However, in New York, we, we live in a pretty temperate climate and we associated an increase in temperature humidity index with an increase in colostrum yield. However, we're not necessarily showing a cause-effect relationship here, mm -hmm. meaning that there's potentially other variables that are influencing colostrum production. And we know that there's a relationship between warmer environments and an increased colostrum production. However, when we think about heat stress cows, we need to think about them in a different context. I just, I, I think it's really important for folks to recognize, I, I live down here in Southwest Missouri and it gets some kind of hot, you know, and, uh, and these cows were likely housed number one in a barn. And I bet that it was rather comfortable. Yes. I struggle with understanding how hot it actually was in June and July in upstate New York, because I've never been there. And so, uh, but previous literature has looked at the number of hours of daylight per day or the average daily temperature. We looked at area under the curve specifically to understand the total exposure of light and temperature for those cows. However, we, we have it presented in this paper as the average temperature humidity index per 30 minute interval, which is how often our sensors were, were stamping. Kicking. So mm -hmm. obviously during the day, it's going to be warmer mm -hmm. and at night it's going to be cooler, but across seven days, uh, those cows every 30 minutes were exposed to at least greater than 69.2 THI. Okay, yeah. Okay, say that one more time. So over, on average over that seven 
day window, it, they were exposed to greater than 69 degrees. So, Correct. Yeah. And, and so it, it's hot there too. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. But yet you still found an elevated level of colostrum during that time. Yeah. Cool. Very good. But, I, but, but when we go back to, and there's, there's controlled studies out there looking at cooled versus heat stressed cows, they show a, a reduction in colostrum production. So that's really where we have to start thinking about these associations versus mm -hmm. a, a causal effect. Right. And there's quite a wide variation between the 19 different barns that you were working with relative to their light intensity. Do you think after looking at this data set that it might be valuable for dairy producers to invest in improved lighting in their close-up cow barn? Yeah, that's a great question. So we were able to show that between the 19 herds enrolled in our study, that throughout the course of the year, there is a wide variation in the, the light intensity within that close-up barn. And we can all think about barns that we've been in that are extremely dark or have very good lighting. The sun is hitting them differently. The location of that farm will change the amount of light in that barn. But when it comes to using light as a management strategy to affect colostrum production, we're not quite there yet. We understand that there's a relationship between the amount of light within that barn that that cow is exposed to and her colostrum production. However, in order to use lighting strategies as a management strategy to affect colostrum production, we're going to need some additional research to understand, um, A, if that relationship is causal, and B, uh, how to best utilize that lighting strategy to affect colostrum production, but also consider the, the milk production of the next lactation for that cow. That would be curious to see if there's a carryover effect stimulating the prolactin of perhaps. Do you think there might be? Yeah, some of Dahl's work would suggest managing cows on a short photo period during the dry period will affect early lactation milk production of the for that cow. So I think it it is something that we should consider for colostrum production as well as milk production. Fabulous. Makes sense. Very good. So as, as we go down the line on table five about all of these different parameters that have statistical significance on colostrum production, we've talked and touched on a lot on the parity side of things. We've talked a little bit about heat and humidity exposure and, and light intensity. Could you speak a little bit specifically on the length of the dry period relative to colostrum production? Uh, breaking it down to the short dry period of less than 47 days, the long dry period greater than 67, and then right there in between 47 and 67, your more conventional amount of time. How does that duration in the dry period impact total volume of colostrum of the subsequent lactation? We found an association between the length of the dry period and the colostrum production for that cow. Those cows having less than 47-day dry period producing 9.2 pounds of colostrum. Those animals with a 47 to 67-day dry period being associated with 11.5 pounds of colostrum. And those animals with a longer dry period of greater than 67 days being associated with 14 pounds of colostrum. So this data show us that those animals that had a longer dry period were associated with an increased colostrum yield. However, when we're managing cows on farm, we don't think about actual days dry. We think about managing cows for an expected dry period, usually around approximately 60 days. However, some dairy and some management strategies are going for a shorter day, maybe that's 45 days. 
And there's been some uh, previously done research looking at assigning cows to different dry periods. And they also found that when we drop that dry period from 60 days, those animals do lose some clostrum production when they're managed for maybe a 40 to 45 day dry period. In the grand scheme of things, though, you got to look at the whole beast. And, and sometimes sacrificing a little bit of colostrum yield might be uh, financially better for your herd. And so you really need to kind of understand the dynamics with that. So, you know, we, we never can particularly tell exactly when when they're going to calve. And, and so it's, it's kind of tricky balancing out that transition cow pen and making sure that she's not only getting the ration that she needs, but the comfort that she needs and everything's just clicking right along in order to set her off on the right trajectory for early lactation. All right, so can you reinforce what we've been seeing on the farm with those long-term late bull calves that cause trouble calving or or maybe sets of twins or stillbirths. Um, what do you see with colostrum production on, on those situations? Yeah, so I think this is actually a, a really interesting point and working through this data, it's maybe not one that I completely expected to see, but num- nonetheless, it, it continues to be an interesting finding within this study. And that's, we associated the sex of the calf uh, with clostrum production from both multiparous and primiparous animals, uh, with those cows giving birth to a female calf being associated with the lowest clostrum yield. And we see an increase in clostrum production from those cows giving birth to a male or twin calf. Isn't it interesting that the heifer calf that you're wanting to feed this colostrum to the most generates the least amount? In addition, uh, we also observed an association uh, within multi-parous cows for those animals giving birth to a stillborn calf being associated with a lower colostrum production. And to our knowledge, we don't quite understand why these relationships may be happening. However, uh, we do hypothesize that calf and the size of that calf, so the birth weight of that calf, and therefore the placental size of that calf, the hormones involved in the clostogenesis or the formation of colostrum in the mammary gland Uh, may be affected by the size of that calf. So nonetheless, an interesting finding of this study. It is quite curious. I I do wonder biologically what's happening with that. How in the world um, uh, a male or a bull calf would would have any impact on it whatsoever is is quite interesting. It just shows the depth of data that you have captured here in this very comprehensive research project. And I just can't applaud you enough for all the information that you've pulled together for this particular project. Can we talk a little bit about the herd of animals that that give zero pounds of colostrum? What What were some observations that you made in the situations when she just doesn't give any? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think many of us who work on farms have experienced these cows uh, where we go and uh, we're attempting to harvest colostrum. However, uh, she just doesn't have any colostrum. So we looked at a number of the uh, factors uh, that could be contributing to that. And one of those that I'm just going to touch on is the month of calving. So as we've touched on earlier in this discussion, uh, we know that colostrum production is is changes throughout the year. And we also noticed that the odds of those animals producing zero kilograms of colostrum is also associated to the month of calving, 
with those animals calving in the, the winter months being associated with an increased odds of producing zero colostrum. We also wow. noticed that parity as well as dry period length are associated with those multi-parous cows uh, producing zero kilograms of colostrum with our older cows having an increased odds of a zero kilogram colostrum yield compared to our parity two cows and our cows with a shorter dry period of less than 47 days being associated with an increased odds of zero kilograms compared to our cows with a longer dry period. Yeah, it's, it's just really, honestly, to me, it feels counterintuitive. You think of that big old cow tending to be the one that's reliable in giving you a, a solid volume of high quality colostrum, when in fact your your data says that your your second uh, lactation animals are really the ones that, that create a, a sizable volume of high quality colostrum. And it, and it's just interesting to me. Do you think on the winter side of things, is it a function of of energy metabolism? Could you speculate? I mean, I know it wasn't studied here, but would you speculate on what the biological reasoning is for a zero colostrum event through the winter months? Yeah, so I think our knowledge in this area is not quite there yet. And the next step, in my opinion, is considering a number of the different diet components. So we also have a companion paper to the one that we're discussing where we looked at different diet components in the prepartum period that are associated with colostrum production and understanding not only the dry matter intake of that cow, but the diet components of that cow, I think are important when we consider colostrum production. However, in actually understanding or our knowledge of why these things are happening at this point, we do not know. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? That's what is so beautiful about dairy science is that uh, once you complete a project, you just create more questions. Um, and so it, it's the constant quest of information and knowledge to help us better understand the herd. I want to leave listeners with a, a little nugget of information. In the discussion portion of the paper, you talked about how one-fifth of the cows produce colostrum below the industry standard at relative to IgG concentration. Could you speak a little bit about how can we proactively plan accordingly to ensure that we have adequate colostrum supply on hand? Trent, what are some things that you want boots on the ground dairy producers to take home today from this podcast? So when we think about this, this study as a whole, we understand that colostrum production shows annual variability, but I, th I think we should think as dairy producers, if this variability in the colostrum production stresses our colostrum feeding program, or if we have more colostrum, are we able to provide a second or third meal to those calves and be able to utilize that colostrum? And some of the things that we can do to help us understand if we are observing variation in our colostrum production would be recording colostrum yield in bricks percent over time. Mm. Uh, this data will allow us to help track and understand the changes that we're experiencing on our individual farm and potentially in the years to come if we're experiencing a similar variation in our colostrum production. And if we are having a colostrum program that is stressed during certain periods of the time throughout the year, uh, we can use our trusted farm advisors to review a number of the different variables that we discussed today, uh, which would include variables such as the dry period length that we're utilizing on our farm and potentially the prepartum diet components 
in order to understand if there's changes that we could make either short or long term in the attempt to hopefully help us troubleshoot our short colostrum supply. And then after we get colostrum out of that cow, I think it's always important to revisit our storage and our feeding practices to ensure that we're utilizing that high quality colostrum that we've harvested for the benefit of that calf. That's fantastic. Thank you for the wise words and great advice to propel our listeners forward through this topic. Trent, this has been really informative, and I, I want to thank you for your time. And listeners, I applaud you for taking time out of your day today to learn about what impacts your management can have on your farm's colostrum inventory. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and this has been the February edition of Dairy Science Digest, a monthly podcast project designed to bring the Journal of Dairy Science straight to the ears of dairy producers. We highlight peer-reviewed research articles in press. It's sound science that you can base your management decisions around provided by your University of Missouri dairy team. So please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to get future editions straight to your cell phone. This is Reagan Bluell with Dairy Science Digest, and I hope you have a great day.